0: we are studying through proverbs 1 through 9 and this is god's 3000-year-old instruction manual for how to live wisely and it's just as relevant for today in the bible wisdom refers to a skill it doesn't refer to smarts doesn't refer to degrees it refers to skill wisdom is a relational skill of rightly relating to God in every facet of life do you know how to rightly relate to God in your decision making or in your finances in your business ethics in your response to trials Proverbs is focused on rightly relating to God in every facet of life chapters 1 and 2 focused on how to get wisdom you need to respect God. That's the central part. You need to repudiate bad peer pressure. You need to respond whenever God corrects you. And that responding whenever God corrects you should turn into a life-dominating hunt for correction. We invite God's correction if we're wise. We, we crave God's correction. It's not just receiving it. That's where it begins. It's a receiving of it that turns into a hungering for it and a seeking of it. That's how we get wisdom. According to Proverbs 3 and 4, what we're studying the end of right now, Solomon emphasizes in these two chapters how to keep wisdom. So he says, get wisdom, chapters 1 and 2. Keep wisdom, chapters 3 and 4. And he's describing a life that's oriented around loving God and loving others. And that is only possible, as I pointed out last week, through God himself. That's why Solomon used the concepts of creation and knowledge and blessing and the tree of life. He's thinking of the grand story of human history. The only way we can be remade so that our hearts love God and love others like they should. The only way that we can be remade is by God himself, by the Messiah, the long-awaited king that God sends. We need God himself to fix our hearts. And Solomon was hinting at that in the middle of chapter 3. We're going to read chapter 4 now together and try to apply it to our lives, but one of the things that you're going to notice is that there is a strong emphasis in chapter 4 on perseverance. Perseverance. Those who get wisdom diligently hold on to it. Proverbs 4, hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, don't forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, and the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get insight, don't forget, don't turn away from the words of my mouth, don't forsake her, she'll keep you, love her, she'll guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, she'll exalt you. She'll honor you if you embrace her. She'll place on your head a graceful garland. She'll bestow on you a beautiful crown. He comes back and basically says what he said in verse 1 again. Verse 10, hear, my son, accept my words that the years of your life may be many, I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. If you run, you'll not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Don't let her go guard her, for she's your life. Don't enter the path of the wicked. Don't walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Don't go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on they are robbed of sleep unless they've made someone stumble for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the full day the way of the wicked is like deep darkness they don't know over what they stumble he comes back for a third time now he said it in verse 1 he said it in verse 10 he says it in verse 20 My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight and keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, healing to all their flesh, healing to their whole body. And now he lists four aspects of a person's being, the affections, the words, the desires, the actions. He says, first, keep your heart above all else or with all vigilance for out of it flow the issues of life the springs of life put away from you crooked speech and devious talk put far from you so he's addressed the affections and the words now the desires let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you And ponder the path of your feet. The feet represent all of our behavior, our actions. Then all your ways will be sure. Don't swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. In the fourth chapter of Proverbs, God speaks to us directly through Solomon about the crucial importance of perseverance. Here's the way I'd word the main point. More than anything... Those who get wisdom must persevere in holding on to it. More than anything, persevere. That's the title of the message. More than anything, persevere. More than anything, those who get wisdom must persevere in keeping it and holding on to it. Again, you have to think wisdom is the relational skill of pleasing God in all of life. Are you on that path? Don't swerve off of it, is chapter 4. Are you concerned about pleasing God? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in what God did for you through Jesus? Don't turn from it. Keep on that path. Persevere in living for God to the end of your life. That's the essence of Proverbs 4. Persevere. More than anything, persevere. Now, I just want to point out to you that that's exactly what's being said. I'm just going to point out a few instances of it to give you the gist. Look at verse 2. He says, Don't abandon my teaching. Verse 4, Let your heart tenaciously keep holding on to my words. Verse 5, Don't turn away from my words. Verse 6, Don't forsake wisdom. Leave her. Verse 13, Keep stronghold of instruction. Don't let her go. Keep her. You get the idea. Verses 14 and 15, I almost have to laugh. In two verses, Solomon says six different ways. Don't veer down the wrong path. Two verses, six ways. You get the idea. God, through Solomon, is saying, if you are on the path of wisdom, stay. Don't veer. Stay. That's the message. Kathleen Nielsen, in her commentary on Proverbs, just notes. Beautifully. She says, This instruction will encourage any of us who need a reminder and motivation to persevere as we follow the Lord, which I guess would be all of us. I appreciate this instruction as a person who's known the Lord for a long time and who needs this call to keep walking faithfully to the end, not giving into fears or foibles that would put me off the course. If you're a believer, your heart beats with Kathleen's heart. God, I've known you. I've known you for five months. I've known you for a year. I've known you for five years. I've known you for 50 years. Help me not to swerve off the path. Help me to be faithful to the end. Solomon's teaching the importance of perseverance. Those who keep wisdom persevere. They endure. Now, it's critical that at this point, I step back and I think about perseverance from a broad biblical perspective and then we're going to come back to Proverbs 4. Okay? I want to just state what the Bible teaches cover to cover on perseverance. To put it in a word, I'd say, those who have true faith that saves them never stop believing. True saving faith is enduring, persevering faith. It's the whole point of the letter to the Hebrews. Climaxes in chapters 10 and 11. Faith perseveres. You know that chapter 11 climaxes in the first two verses of chapter 12 of Hebrews. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Faith endures. Saving faith, true faith, never ends. It keeps on believing. Perseverance, the ongoing nature of of faith, doesn't earn salvation. It proves the genuineness of it. It proves the genuineness of it. That's what Solomon is getting at when he says, If you've got wisdom, if you've started a relationship with the Lord, keep going. Don't swerve off this path. Now, there are two common pitfalls in the way Christians think about perseverance. The first common pitfall is believers say, I guess if I'm a Christian, then I can live however I want. I hope you hear that what Proverbs 4 is saying is that's not at all how people who've gotten the fear of the Lord think about life. If you have gotten the fear of the Lord, if you have a relationship with God because you've turned from your sin and you're trusting the Lord, keep going, don't swerve, don't forsake the teaching, keep on keeping on. You don't think if I'm a Christian that I can live however I want. No, not at all. Many times, people think the second pitfall, if I'm a true Christian, then I'm not really going to struggle with sin. The second pitfall kind of assumes that if I'm a Christian, I'm not going to fail. I'm never going to go through seasons of doubt. I'm going to be strong, not weak. This erroneous viewpoint nearly threw me off the path in the middle of my teenage years and into my early 20s. I kept thinking, if I'm a real Christian, I wouldn't struggle like I do. If I'm a real Christian, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back to the same sins. It's just not true. True believers struggle. True believers struggle to persevere. Just pick up your Bible. All the heroes of the faith experienced doubt, seasons of disobedience, weakness, even times of monumental failure. Heroes that are held up as examples. You've got to rid out of your mind, if I'm a true Christian, then I'm not really going to struggle with sin. No, you've got to keep in mind Proverbs 4. More than anything, those who get wisdom must persevere in holding on to it. Now in the remainder of our time, I just want to kind of riff on this theme. Perseverance. And I want to unpack it from the three sections of Proverbs 4. I'm going to point out in every section why I use the superlative, more than anything, because that comes right out of the text. The first aspect of the exhortation to persevere is more than anything get wisdom this one is kind of funny what's the beginning of wisdom get wisdom and more than anything get wisdom it's like i I think i'm getting your point the advice of the first nine verses centers on get wisdom and i i point out the humor almost of the repetition of verse seven the esv has the beginning of wisdom is this get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight, a synonym for wisdom. That New Living Translation paraphrases it. Getting wisdom is the most important thing you can do. The NIV, wisdom is supreme, so get wisdom. Good translations. The summit of this section, in verses 8 and 9, basically says you get wisdom you'll be exalted you'll be honored you'll be crowned and again I'm going back to like what I said last week you can't hear language like tree of life and not think about it in terms of the whole scripture you can't think, hear terms like honored exalted, crowned and not think about it in terms of the whole scripture Jesus, those who humble themselves will be exalted James, Jesus' half-brother those who persevere under trial will be crowned with life. God has promised it to all those who love him. Paul, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown. Do you you see the connection between perseverance and being crowned with life, being exalted and honored? Those who persevere in humbly walking with God and remaining committed to Jesus throughout life, throughout all their trials, they're going to be exalted. They're going to be crowned. More than anything, get wisdom. You'll be crowned with life. Before I go on to point 2, I want to stop here and point out one of the most remarkable features of Proverbs 4. It is one of the features that I cannot escape. I have not been able to escape it for more than a decade, and I hope that this is fuel for your perseverance. Look again at the first four verses. Proverbs 4, 1 to 4. Solomon is describing the source of this wisdom. He's talking to his sons, which at least would involve his biological sons, who he had many of them. They are going to be future royalty. They're going to have high places in the kingdom. He says, I want you to hear your father's instruction, verse one. Verse three, he says, when I was a son with my father and beloved by my mother, he taught me this, verse four, and said to me, get wisdom. Solomon is basically saying when I was raised by my father and mother, they taught me what I'm teaching you. In other words, I'm passing on the family legacy. And I would just say, every time you think about Proverbs 4, two names should come to mind. Who is Solomon's father and who is Solomon's mother? His father is David and his mother's Bathsheba. So let's read the verse verse 3 like that. When I was a son with my father, David, and when I was tenderly loved as the only son of my mother, Bathsheba, that's when they taught me to get wisdom. My parents, David and Bathsheba, they taught me to get wisdom. I I would guess that hearing that makes you struggle. I would also guess that hearing that might be strangely encouraging to you. This window into Solomon's life reminds us that Solomon didn't have parents who were perfect. He had parents who knew temptation and failure. God doesn't use perfect parents. They've never, ever existed. He uses humble, repentant parents. Solomon, I think his parents called him Jed, that was the nickname that his parents were given for him by Nathan the prophet to so call him Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. This one is loved by God. Jed knew that his parents weren't perfect. He knew that his parents lived with lasting regrets. He knew that the tensions that there were in his dad's kingdom and with his brothers were part of the consequences of that horrific sin. He knew that his older brother had died as an infant. From his parents, Jed knew that sin has awful consequences. And yet he also knew that his family was a testimony to God's grace and forgiveness. Parents, do you want your kids to grow up wisely? You don't have to be perfect. Breathe a sigh of relief. God doesn't ever use perfect parents because they don't exist. He uses humble, repentant parents. He uses parents who fail and get back up. Parents, do you realize that you can use your failures to explicitly teach your children? You can share with them the details of your story of grace. You can use your failures to empathize with your children when they fail. Parents, don't we too often react? How in the world could you do that? we should react I'm made of the same stuff one of the greatest ironies in the bible is that it's most prolific authors were such flawed notoriously flawed characters Moses had massive problems with his temper so much that he was prevented from entering the promised land with Joshua and that generation David did show remarkable humility, didn't he? When confronted with sin, he said, yeah, I'm a sinner. But he was a man of remarkable failures. Solomon, this author, so much of the Bible's wisdom comes through Solomon, and yet he made such foolish choices throughout his life. He was notorious for his foolish choices. This is one of those things that makes the Bible such a trustworthy book. Greg Gilbert in his book Why Trust the, the Bible he says the writings in the Bible <laughs> include way too many embarrassing details including things that make the heroes of the story look well less than heroic if you're trying to pull off a hoax and make your religion attractive why would you keep pointing out how your leaders were as dense as rocks it's hmm. good The fact that the Bible's heroes are so flawed not only makes the Bible trustworthy, but it makes the Bible encouraging. If God could save them, if God could remain faithful to them, if God could love them to the end, and if he could use them, flaws and all, then there's hope for someone like me. More than anything, get wisdom. More than anything, Don't stray. Verses 10 to 19, don't stray. Stay on the path. Stay on the path. Keep close to God. Stay in relationship with God. Keep growing in your relationship with God. In these verses, verses 10 to 19, Solomon likens walking with God to a path you walk down. This is something very common in Proverbs. And here he's saying it's a path that you stay on and you don't veer off of. He describes the way of life that's marked by disobedience to God. If you look especially at the last verse of the section, verse 19, it is a dark path. Many stumble down that path. It's like trying to hike a dangerous mountain at midnight. It's dangerous. There's... There's so much tripping. And by contrast, he uses the term life a lot in chapter 4. The end of the path of of wickedness, of rebellion, of of cruelty to others, self-centeredness that ignores others. That's a path that ultimately ends in death. That's the thinking of Solomon. There's one path that leads to life and the other is a path of darkness that leads to death. Now take a look at the imagery of verses 18 and 19. Just like last week, I'd suggest again that Solomon is not merely thinking about blessings in this life. He's thinking about blessings that begin in this life, but are not complete until glory. You say, where do you get that from? Well, I pointed out verse 19 describes the path of those who rebel against God as a path of deep darkness. But the previous verse, verse 18, describes what the path of the righteous is like. Those who have turned from their sin and are trusting God. Their path looks like the light of dawn that's going to keep increasing until the full sun of the early afternoon Not deep darkness, but like dawn to noon. If you've not submitted your life to Jesus, to God's chosen king, David's greater son, his descendant, who is going to rule on earth forever. If you've not submitted your life to God's Messiah, then I call you to turn The passage describes your life as deep darkness, lots of tripping, ultimate death. Stop walking down that path. Admit that rebellion against the Lord is not what you're made for call out to Jesus to forgive you for your rebellion, for wanting to be your own authority, and submit yourself to him and call on him to save you and wash you from your guilt with his blood. If you have turned from being your own authority and you have called on Jesus to save you, the dawn has begun. The sun has begun to rise. In your life... the the light is now piercing the darkness. The Apostle John would put it, centuries later, the darkness is disappearing. The true light is already shining. Now with the exact same imagery, I want to give you food for perseverance. If you're a Christian... You need to know that the sunlight in your life has not reached midday yet. In fact, this morning was a perfect illustration of the Christian life. We're driving to church, and my two girls are saying, It's dreary. What a weird morning. You're wanting there to be clearer sunshine, warmer light. And at 8.45, it's just blah. Until you see Jesus, until you see the sun in all his glory, your life is going to be a mix of darkness and light. But as certain as the sun continues to rise, as certain as dawn gives way to noon, God's going to be faithful. God's going to finish what He's begun in you. One day you're going to experience life without an ounce of darkness. Without any sin, without any sickness, without any sorrow, without any death. One scholar puts it like this. The path of the righteous comes to perfect illumination. And with that, absolute salvation. We're going to be finally, forever, completely saved. The sun's rising right now. It hasn't finished. If you're feeling like it's an icky 8 a.m. kind of experience. Is the sun coming up? Is the sun going down? Can't figure out what the sun's going to do? That is what it's like to live on the path of righteousness. You can see things better than you did when you were in complete darkness. But the sun hasn't finished its rotation or the earth around the sun. If you've turned to Jesus, don't lose heart if you're still very aware of the darkness and the dreariness of the early morning. The God who made the sun and who made the rotation so that the sun always moves from dawn to full noon, that same God is going to faithfully finish the good work he's begun. Stay on the path. Don't get off of it. Third, Finally, more than anything, guard your heart from evil. The final portion of chapter 4 emphasizes again the need to keep evil out of your life. Except rather than Solomon being like a tour guide on a path and saying, don't go there, don't go there, it's almost like Solomon is now an anatomy teacher. And he points to the heart, and then he points to the mouth, then he points to the eyes, and then he points to the feet. And he says, do not let evil infect your body. Now of course Solomon understands that problems, our problems are not only external. They're not only environmental. As if we're just good flowers that need rain and sunshine. No, Solomon understands that our hearts are corrupt. That our hearts are naturally foolish. And he also knows that God can change our hearts. He knows that Those who are bent towards sin can turn away from their their own autonomy, their rebellion, and they can submit to Jesus. He knows this. According to verse 23, the transformation takes part fundamentally, first and fundamentally, in our hearts. We guard our hearts from the evil within and the evil without. Again, I point out, Solomon's language is superlative. The first point, he said, whatever you get, get wisdom. In the second point, he said, you need to stay on this path because it's life. In the third section, he says, verse 23, keep your heart above all keeping. Our version translates it, with all vigilance, above everything, more than anything, more than any guarding that you do, guard your heart. That's because your affections, what you love and what you hate, are the source of your behavior. How do you guard your heart? He's using imagery of soldiers guarding a city, right? There's one primary way. One primary way. This is where we end. I would recommend... Regular biblical self-examination. Regular biblical self-examination. Do you have a regular habit of reading the Bible? Don't just trust your own thoughts. Don't just trust your own thoughts. You need God to use the searchlight of his word to sort through facets of your life you don't know enough by yourself you need God's word to shine the light on what's going on in your life don't try self-examination without the Bible okay? needs to be biblical secondly it needs to be biblical self-examination don't just read the Bible and put it down allow the light of the scriptures to search you This often takes place in reflection and in prayer based on what you've read in the Bible. Bible reading must involve personal reflection that leads to action in the same way that if you were a guard at a security tower shining a searchlight into the territory that you're trying to guard and you saw an intruder, you'd respond, you'd throw off alarms you would go through the security protocol and deal with the intruder. We need to let the searchlight of the Word into our hearts. We need to throw off alarms when God exposes pride or lust or worry or envy or bitterness. We need to let God in. We need to let Him examine our words Say, I had a cruel tone. I did not use those words to build that person up, but I tried to tear them down and put them in their place. Let God search your life. And when you identify an intruder, alarms go off and it should lead to repentance. This is where much self-examination goes wrong. Right? If if self-examination leads you to grieve... And say something like, I'm just an awful person. I've been like this for so many years. Nothing's really changing. Ugh! That's not healthy biblical self-examination. That is morbid introspection. Good grief always leads to repentance. Repentance. Good grief doesn't end in morbid wallowing. It drives you to God, saying, God, you have opened my eyes to an intruder in my heart, and now I can deal with him. God, I am sorry. God, please forgive me. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just. You'll forgive us and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. God, cleanse me from speaking those awful words. I want to go back now and apologize to the people I hurt. God, forgive me for harboring those evil thoughts. Forgive me. I I pray that you would help me to think thoughts that are true and right and honorable, this sort of a thing. The grief that often comes from self-examination should drive toward repentance and drive toward cleansing and assurance of forgiveness. That's biblical self-examination. The last thing I just emphasize is this this kind of self-examination should be regular. Could you imagine a jewelry store that only turns its surveillance on on Saturdays? He says, keep your heart with all vigilance. I think it's healthy to recommend a daily habit. And if you regularly pray the Lord's Prayer, and you're saying, forgive me of my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me, your mind is constantly going to be taken down this road of, God, how have I sinned against you in the last day? Please forgive me diligent self-examination is the way you keep your heart biblical self-examination not morbid introspection but self-examination that drives toward repentance and forgiveness and clearing and assurance of grace you can move forward in the strength of that grace throughout the rest of the day do you have a regular time christian in which you pray to god search me examine me Expose to me any waywardness that's in my life that I can deal with. If you don't engage in regular biblical self-examination, you're like a jewelry store without surveillance. Your heart is a valuable instrument, and you're not guarding it. You're like a city without a police force. Persevering in wisdom leads to life. If you have gotten Jesus, don't let go. Let's pray. Father, again, we pray that you would use your word to strengthen, stabilize our faith, to give us grace to persevere. We ask, Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus through our weaknesses, our failures, our doubts, Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us today with this biblical encouragement to persevere. I pray that for many of us, we would begin habits of regular biblical self-examination, allowing the searchlight of your word to probe our lives regularly. And God, I pray that we who do engage in regular biblical self-examination, I pray that we would not give in to the temptation of morbid introspection that leads to wallowing, but that what we see, the intruders we see in the city, you would give us grace to deal with and move on from. God, I pray that we would be vigilant in this work of guarding. I pray these things for our good, for Jesus' glory. Amen.